So, what is the third world? Let's start with naming. French anthropologist and historian Alfred Sauvé coined the term third world in reference to countries that were unaligned with either the communist Soviet bloc or the capitalist NATO bloc during the Cold War. In an article published in the French magazine Le Observateur on August the 14th, 1952, he said, and I quote, because at the end this is ignored, exploited, scorned, third world like the third estate wants to become something too, end quote. You see, in France, under the old Echeon regime, i.e. the monarchy system before the French Revolution of 1789, the Estates General was split into three parts. The composition and powers of the Estates General remained the same typically over the centuries. They always included representatives of one, the first estate, i.e. the clergy, two, the second estate, i.e. the nobility, and three, the third estate, that's the commoners, i.e. everyone else. Monarchs always summoned these people either to, gar- to grant subsidies or to advise the crown, also to give aid and counsel. At the time of the revolution, the first estate had about a 100,000 Catholic clergy that owned 5-10% to 10% of the lands in France. That's the highest per capita of any estate. All property of the first estate was tax-exempt. The second estate compromised of the nobility, which consisted around 400,000 people that included women and children. Since the death of Louis XIV in 1715, the nobles had enjoyed a resurgence in power. By the time of the revolution, they had almost a monopoly over distinguished government service, higher offices in the church, army and parliaments, and most other public and semi-public honours. Under the principle of feudal president, they were not taxed. That leaves a third estate. This compromised around 25 million people, including the bourgeoisie, the peasants, and everyone else in France. Unlike the first and second estates, the third estate were compelled to pay taxes. The bourgeoisie found ways to evade them and become exempt. The major burden of the French government fell upon the poorest in French society, i.e. the farmers, the peasantry, and working poor. This third estate had considerable resentment towards the upper classes. So, Savoy's analogy seems to suggest that the third world is, one, most of the population lives here, two, who are woefully poor yet carry the burden for the rest, three, it does have some rich who escape the poverty and then weasel themselves out from a hard life, four, third estate, look to the first and second estate with some jealousy, therefore the third world looks to the first and second world with some jealousy. And number five, hold ample resentment for the rich. Remember, he's writing in 1952. The Cold War was ramping up, tensions were high in Berlin, and most importantly, decolonization was creating a bunch of new countries. Moreover, even though Savoy wasn't intending it, 
the implication of ranking clearly resonated with his fellow Westerners. If they can be the first world, the most developed and enlightened, then the communists can be allocated second place. Yes, sure enough, the Reds technically can destroy the liberal elites in the West multiple times over with a few nukes, but nah, capitalism, liberalism and democracy are domains of the civilized and not the somewhat barbaric Easterners who look to Karl Marx and Vladimir Lenin rather than Adam Smith or John Locke. So shove the Reds to second world, leaving that remaining world, you know, the one that is roughly 80% of the population, the third world. If the first world are the liberal elites, the second world is the communist barbarians, then the third are the poor native savages. The general view of the world from the end of the colonial era starting in the later 1940s right into the 1990s was that this third world was the domain of civil wars, wars, famine, poverty and wild animals roaming the slums and streets. Yes, sure, some places had grand pasts, but now that civilizational wheel had come full circle and the West is the best and well... They are third-worlders, and sometimes you need to face the facts. Geopolitically, the third world was a playground, ideally for the first world, but also, unfortunately, from the perspective of the first world, for the second world as well. What both the first and second worlds learnt from the 1914 to 1945 era is that war is human nature, and needed. But if you can have a war in somebody else's land, slaughter their babies rather than having yours slaughtered, that solves three things. One, the human need for a good old war. Two, refresh of and testing of war technology, maybe even a sale or two of war equipment. And number three, pushes violence onto somebody else's backyard. If you want more background, check out some of my older episodes. Episode 32, The Violence of War, Episode 30, The Great Powers, Episode 25, Russia vs. America, Episode 23, Western Civilization. These episodes deal with stuff like war, great power politics, US versus Russia, and the West, all related stuff. If you were around in the years between the end of the Second World War and the start of the 1990s, the general image that would be portrayed on first world media was of famine in Africa, war in Asia, drugs in South America, military coups in the Middle East, and so on. An additional feature of the third world was the rise of people to organization to people charity from the first world to the third world. Yes, people to organizations who then would redistribute to people in the third world. This was called charity or non-profit organizations. Oh, also, governments themselves would tout supposedly generous foreign developmental aid to these third world countries. It solved multiple headaches, but five I can talk to you about right now. Number one, exit the guilt of holding all the debt to these very countries. Pre-2000, first world nations banks had so much debt on so many third world countries that it was woefully embarrassing. Two, exit guilt of being former looters, I mean imperialists, and 
that's the embarrassing part of holding all that debt in the first place. Three, buying a corrupt leader or two, who would then either A, align with you or B, buy a few weapons from you. Four, means to edge their way into a country's domestic affairs through covert stealth. You know, you can throw a bunch of spies into these non-profit organizations. And number five, you really did get to help a few poor people in the process. So a win-win for everyone concerned, right? Of course, there was also the clear, distinct contrast of the first world's own more stable societies that benefits from liberalism and liberal democracy at the core of the system versus the supposed mess of the third world. The final difference between the first and second and then the third worlds was immigration. Poorer third worlders would seek to migrate legally or illegally to the richer pastures of the first world, especially the English-speaking West. Meanwhile, the few first worlders who made the move to the second or third worlds were considered expatriates or expats, not immigrants. So this movement of immigrants and expats, by the way, in my view, the same thing, just immigrant is more associated with poor to rich, while expat is rich to poor, that's about it. Anyway, this movement of humans had a side effect. It allowed first, second and third world humans to conduct people-to-people contact at mass scale, unlike anything in the past. In the 1960s, as the Beatles, rock and roll, and popular culture snuck into Western and First World societies, it helped shape changing attitudes. Attitudes actually started to shift. Legal changes in many First World countries led to increased legal migration from the Third and Second World to the First World. By the early 1990s, the Third World had become the developing world, because by then, The second world had collapsed, resulting in no more Cold War, and we suddenly had a whole missing world inconveniently sandwiched between the first and the second, between the first and the third world. The second world went missing. Additionally, the words developing country sounded more politically correct for liberal elite egos in the first world than the word third world. There isn't actually a great, neat and clean definition of developing country or developing world. The United Nations defines it in 2010 as, and I quote, There is no established convention for the designation of developed and developing countries or areas in the United Nations system. In common practice, Japan in Asia, Israel in the Middle East, Canada and the United States in North America, Australia and New Zealand in Oceania, and Europe are considered developed regions or areas. In international trade statistics, the Southern African Customs Union is also treated as a developed region and Israel as a developed country. Countries emerging from the former Yugoslavia are treated as developing countries, and countries of Eastern Europe and of the Commonwealth of Independent States, i.e. the former Soviet Union in Europe, are not included under either developed or developing regions. End quote. Kofi Annan, former Secretary General of the United Nations, defined a developed 
country as one that allows its citizens to enjoy a free and healthy life in a safe environment. In the crudest of terms, and one should look at stuff like this in the crudest of terms, the developing world was not the US, not under technical or otherwise US occupation, i.e. Japan, and not a treaty US ally. So Ethiopia was third world, but Denmark was not. The Non-Aligned Movement, or NAM, NAM, is a forum still in 2021 of 120 developing world states that are not formally aligned with or against any major power bloc. After the United Nations, it is the largest grouping of states worldwide. The movement originated in the 1950s as an effort by some countries to avoid the polarized world of the Cold War between the capitalist and communist states. Requirements for membership of the non-aligned movement coincided with the key beliefs of the United Nations. The current requirements are that the candidate country has displayed practices in accordance with the 10 Brandenburg Principles of 1955, I like this because it tells you what collectively countries of the third world thought, i.e. think, and is very different than a first world country. And the thinking process happened soon or during the decolonization period. So here we go. Here's one. Respect for fundamental human rights and for the purposes and principles of the Charter of the United Nations. Well, a lot of these countries don't actually respect human rights. Hmm. Secondly, Respect for the sovereignty and territorial integrity of all nations. This one's actually very important because it says, don't interfere in my internal affairs. How about this? Recognition of the movements for national independence. Definitely a sign of the times. Then there was recognition for the equality of all races and of the equality of all nations, large and small I don't know. Nobody really does that. Nobody believes that. Then there's what I think is the most important one, which is do not interfere in the internal affairs of another country. That's a message to the Soviet bloc and the American bloc to say, don't mess in our internal affairs, because obviously it was happening. Then there was the respect and right of each nation to defend itself singularly or collectively in conformity with the UN Charter. Then, Refraining from acts or threats of aggression or the use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any country. Settlement of all international disputes by peaceful means. Promotion of mutual interests and cooperation. Respect for justice and international obligations. Yes, all wishy-washy stuff, but isn't all diplomatic discourse just like that? Anyhow, moving on. Like the unintended consequences of first versus second and third world, now you had the unintended consequence of developing versus developed world. Meaning one was civilized or had achieved status, while the others had a pathway to get to that point. So they are subtly creating a developing versus developed mindset. As the post-Iraq war era came about, and we started to witness new wealth creation in places like China, Malaysia, and India, the terminology changed again, no longer just developing countries, but now emerging markets or emerging economies, 
meaning mature economies versus emerging markets. Again, you can't win. Emerging to aim at getting to maturity? Anyhow, of course, of all the reasons emerging markets even happened was because of, believe it or not, pollution in the mature markets. Not making sense? Well, let me explain. In short, high pollution from factories and cars combined with so-called green legislation in the first world countries pushed manufacturing from these markets to the emerging markets. Of course, cost was also a factor. Between 1990 and 2020, so much wealth transfer had occurred from the first to the second and third worlds that post-Soviet Russia regained its great power status and by all intents and purposes, China became a superpower, an economic engine, so much sooner than otherwise would have happened. Because of this, some political, social and economic commentators invented a breakdown of the developing world into two. The traditional developing world, that includes the superpower China or economic powers Malaysia, and a new term called the least developed countries, that includes Angola and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. But first world ego isn't the only thing. There are real issues that third worlders face on a day-to-day basis. Developing, emerging or third world countries do have some things in common. Let's go through them because about half the planet face some or all of these issues. Most developing countries have these criteria in common. 1. High levels of poverty. Measured based on gross national income index per capita, averaged over three years. For example, if the GNI per capita is less than USD, about $1,000, that was as of 2018, the country is regarded as a least developed country. Human resource weakness. What does that mean? Based on indicators of nutrition, health, education, and adult literacy. It's low. Economic vulnerability. This is based on instability of agriculture production, instability of export of goods and services, economic importance of traditional activities, stuff like that. Basically, it means that if a natural disaster or something like that happens and it disrupts agriculture, it can create food shortages. In addition to this, there are societal issues to deal with as well. There are urban slums. There's violence against women. Healthcare and public health issues, water sanitization hygiene issues, energy, pollution, population growth, poor governance, high dependency on natural resources for livelihoods, leading to unsustainable exploitation of those resources, child marriage, indebtedness, underperforming civil services, food insecurity, illiteracy, unemployment. That does not even include cultural issues that could arise in some societies. When I look at these, I don't see a huge difference between the first and the third world. Indeed, the first world has ample slums in rural and urban areas. There's violence against women in droves, healthcare and public health concerns in developed markets and so on. However, it is about the degree or percent of the population who are impacted and it is higher in the third world. 33% of urban population in the developing world in 2012, or about 863 million people, lived in slums, urban slums. In 2012, the proportion of urban poor 
living in slums was highest in sub-Saharan Africa, about 62%, followed by South Asia, 35%, Southeast Asia, 31%, and then East Asia, 28%. The UN Habitat reports that 43% of urban population in developing countries and 78% of those in the least developed countries are slum dwellers. Several forms of violence against women are more prevalent in developing countries than other parts of the world. For example, dowry violence, bride burning. These are associated with countries like Nepal and Bangladesh. Acid throwing is also associated with these countries, as well as in Southeast Asia, including Cambodia. Honor killing is associated with the Middle East and South Asia. Marriage by abduction is found in Ethiopia, Central Asia and the Caucasus. Female genital mutilation is another form of violence against women, which is still occurring in many developing countries. It is found most notably in Africa and to a lesser extent in the Middle East and some parts of Asia. People in developing countries usually have a lower life expectancy than people in developed countries. The burden of infectious diseases, maternal mortality, child mortality and infant mortality are typically substantially higher in developing countries. Malnutrition in children and stunted growth of children is the cause of more than 200 million children under five years of age in developing countries not reaching their developmental potential. About 165 million children were estimated to have stunted growth from malnutrition in 2013. In 2015, the World Health Organization estimated that one in three people or 2.4 billion people are still, at the time, without sanitation facilities, while 663 million people at the time lacked access to safe, clean drinking water. The estimate in 2017 states that 4.5 billion people at the time did not have safely managed sanitation. The majority of these people lived in developing countries. Countries with a high number of people openly defecating are India, about 348 million, Nigeria, 38.1 million, Indonesia, 26.4 million, Ethiopia, 23.1 million, Pakistan, 19.7 million, Niger, 14.6 million, and Sudan, 9.7 million. This was as of 2013. In 2009, about 1.4 billion people in the world lived without electricity. 2.7 billion relied on wood, charcoal, and dung for home energy requirements. This lack of access to modern energy technology limits income generation Blunt's effort to escape poverty affects people's health due to indoor air pollution and contributes to global deforestation and climate change, interestingly enough. Water pollution is a major problem in many developing countries. It requires ongoing evaluation and revision of water resource policy at all levels, international down to the individual. It has been suggested that water pollution is the leading worldwide cause of death and disease and it accounts for the deaths of more than 14,000 people daily as of 2021. India and China are two countries with high levels of water pollution. That's 2.5 billion impacted people right there. Of course, it's a case of degree. India has more middle class people than the entire US population. China has enough rich people that exceeds populations of entire countries. Countries themselves try to cut out poverty and develop and grow. 
China sends probes to Mars, India sends probes to space. It's part of development. Britain had children working in factories and down chimneys while maintaining a land empire the size no one had seen before. Think about it this way. In the modern developing world, the first, second and third worlds live in one space. It is just that the third world is a bit bigger than the first. While in the developed world, it is just the same except the first world is bigger. Not because there are more richer people, not at all, but because these countries have a better safety net and high degrees of government intervention, whereas it's the opposite that is true in the developing world. Yes, so many countries have pushed themselves out of poverty, and that should be celebrated. We may or may not agree or disagree with the Chinese Communist Party's politics, but lifting so many millions out of poverty and then spending so much in other people's countries only helps the individual. These people, remember, would otherwise be in abject poverty, not just poor, but abject poverty. So can a developing or emerging country move up a few notches to the first world status level? I have developed three models for countries to use. Model 1, the US taxpayer model. In this model, you invite a foreign power, typically the US, to host a military base or two in your country. It gives US politicians and a few generals an ego trip, but it gives you the ability to focus your resources on your people. The stress of security and defense is reduced, so you can focus on infrastructure, education, health, jobs, and so on. A great example of this is Western Europe, who can spend pennies to the pound in defense because the US mostly foots the bill, hardware, and manpower. Model 2, the economic drive model. In this model, you make your country a tax and economic haven for investment, both in foreign and domestic. You reuse the investment to grow a domestic economy, one that can grow and sustain itself. Yet, that the economy remains controlled, because, let's face it, all economies are controlled. This allows you to grow new wealth and lift people out of poverty. For a small country, the United Arab Emirates and Singapore are wonderful examples. Mid-sized countries look like Malaysia. Of course, with major tweaks, China is another example, just at a massive scale. And lastly, Model 3, Economic Imperialism. This model has worked well through the ages. It involves some risk because you may need to be involved in warfare and violence. There's a huge chance this thing can go horribly wrong, But victory and the spoils of war can have its benefits. It leads to imperialism. You can gain new lands to exploit and grow your own land at the expense of the other guy. Examples of this include the French Empire, the Americans in many countries, the British, the Soviets, and a host of others who held possessions elsewhere directly or indirectly. What about the future of the third world? Well, we are seeing trends now the post-2008-2009 financial crisis and the post-2020-2021 COVID-19 outbreak has seen shifts in the global economy that should raise alarm bells in first world capitals. 1. China has risen after a 200-year lull. 2. India, who is the best bulwark to China, is at best 50 years away from that level of development and at worst is too lethargic to seriously take on China. And three, smaller third world powers are working and trading with each other more than the first world. It is not as simple as a wealth shift from the first to the third. 
from the first to the third, although that did happen. But now wealth shifts are happening within the third world. It's that a lot of trade, wealth and communication never lands on the first world shores anymore. And in my view, this is what is accelerating in the future. All you need to do is take one trip to Mumbai and that will tell you what construction, real estate and manufacturing industries really are, not a trip to Toronto. The level of development and growth is only going to accelerate. Third world countries have decided that to be successful, they need to live with multiple wealth levels inside their societies. That is the secret sauce, i.e. let many economic groups function in parallel rather than focusing on poverty removal and good governance, clean water, healthcare, etc., etc. Being third world and poor is okay, but lack of basics in poor government puts you into a bucket that ex-US President Donald Trump called, and I quote, shithole countries. You definitely want to get out of that dubious category at all costs. Well, hopefully. You have been listening to an alternative history podcast. Please make sure to like, follow and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Thank you very much.